You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Monster House presents. Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our monster talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. It's Paris, 1897. The Eiffel Tower has only been open for eight years. We're in the heart of the Belle Epoque, the period of peace and explosive innovation in Parisian art between the late 1870s and the start of the Great War in 1914. It's also a time of what the French call the fin de siècle, the end period of the century. A dance called the Can-Can is making the Moulin Rouge nightclub the talk of Europe. Marie Curie is newly married, and she and her husband Pierre are conducting experiments that will lead to the discovery of radium. Robert W. Chambers' story collection, The King in Yellow, has been out for less than two years and is thrilling English readers with its weird stories of the supernatural mixed in with dramatic and transgressive tales of French art students and the relationships they have with their models. Claude Monet began his series of water lily paintings this year, and Oscar Wilde, fresh out of English prison, has moved to France and begins writing The Ballad of Reading Jail. It's a time of innovation and new technology, but experimentation also spreads to the stage. A new kind of theatrical experience is emerging, one which tries to create extremely realistic slices of life. The sets are composed of secondhand furniture meant to evoke a kind of realism, perhaps similar to the way we today see high-definition videos. And a few blocks away from the Red Windmilled nightclub, down a dead-end alleyway, behind an entrance that was clearly once a church, a very new kind of experience is unfolding on the stage. Comedy? Yes. Drama? Of course. But then, something else. Imagine you're in the audience. You've had some laughs. You've seen some melodrama. These brief little plays are delightful and efficient. But then this new story starts, and it seems so familiar. Why? What is it about that girl and her family? She's just like that girl 
in that news story you read last week. Oh, no, 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 no. But that girl ended up so horribly. Wait, oh, they can't show this, can they? Because in that news story, what happened to her? Oh, oh, no, they would never. Welcome to the Grand Guignol, the experimental Parisian theater that tried out many innovations, but became famous for one particular thing, terrorizing the audiences with its incredible displays of staged violence to the point that its name has literally become an adjective. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Today we're going to be hearing from Professor Richard Hand, who's going to talk to us about the Grand Guignol, the Paris theater that strongly and directly influenced horror and terror for decades, and whose influence extends far beyond the little building that housed the company and gave stage to terrors night after night. Be sure and check out the books by Professor Han and his writing partner, Michael Wilson. Links to that will be in our show notes. Monster Talk. All right. Welcome to Monster Talk, Dr. Richard Hand. Dr. Hand, you are the professor of media practice at the University of East Anglia, if my research is correct. That's correct. Yeah. And you've, um, you've written extensively on horror and pop culture, including looks at TV, movies, radio, and stage plays. And you've also written and directed numerous plays yourself. And you have multiple books out on the topic that we want to talk about this week, which is one that's been bouncing around in my head for years. Uh, I didn't know how to engage on it, but that's the Paris theater known as the Grand Guignol. And I'm probably slaughtering that, but um, if you can help us say it right. I think we all will. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, no No one wants to hear an Australian pronounce anything in French. So, well, Guignol, I think, is the best we can do. I'm sure the Grand Guignol would be very proud of your slaughtering. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I think they would. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure copious theatre blood is pouring out of people's ears at hearing my tr- attempt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I came across your work while I was actually, I wanted to do an episode on this topic and I did some research myself but I was feeling a bit inadequate. And like literally maybe an hour before we were getting ready to record, I found your work and I was like, whoa, 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 I can't even approach this topic. You've done so much more research on it and I would gather even mm-hmm. practice within it. Uh, <laughs> so, Yeah, he, he canceled the interview and left me at the altar and here we are now. <laughs> so a great deal of uh, drama, but here we are. Exactly. So. So I guess you know, there's a real chance that a lot of our audience may have never even heard of this before. I think I first came across it as an adjective, not as a noun. 
And so uh, what is this? What is the Grand well, Guignol? It's, it's a fantastic term, isn't it, that's entered the language. I mean, mm-hmm. to this day, you, you'll read a review of uh, a new horror movie or the latest series of American Horror Story, and some reviewer will say, oh, it's so Grand Guignol. And so it entered the language, and it's actually a very specific kind of route to it, which was a little theatre in Paris, literally up a kind of dead-end street in, in a sleazy area of Paris, which was called the Théâtre du Grand Guignol. And um, it was an extraordinary venue. It established itself in 1897, which is the same year that Dracula is published across the uh, the English Channel. And uh, so a big year for horror in Europe. And um, and it started, it didn't set out to be a horror theatre. It was a kind of a, a venue for realist plays, short realist plays, which were the kind of all the vogue in, in kind of artistic experimentation in, in, in France at the time. So it was a very small venue because it was a deconsecrated chapel. So already an incredible venue. And they just presented short plays. And these plays were like a snapshot of real life. They were like holding a mirror up to the audience, which was incredibly radical at that moment. Um, and then uh, in the in the first sort of uh, performances, there was one play called Mademoiselle Fifi, in which a French prostitute murders a Prussian soldier, Prussian officer. And that was the one everyone was talking about. So they'd seen five or six plays that night, but everyone was saying, you've got to go just to see that play, if nothing else. And the owners of the Grand Guignol realised, well, we wanted to do Slice of Life, but actually it was our Slice of Death play yeah. that has got the audience. <laughs> that was a Guy Maupassant, uh, based on his short story, wasn't it? Mademoiselle Fifi? That's it, that's it. Yeah, so classic bit of realist French fiction that they'd adapted and it was the one people saying, God, you know, seeing it with real actors and everything, amazing. And that was it. That kind of cast the die. And one thing that's interesting, even though it became this legendary theatre of horror right through to when it closed in the early 60s, it was always a realist theatre. So their kind of horror, they were not interested in the supernatural. But for us now, this is so interesting, isn't it? It's that whole subgenre of horror, which is the slasher movie, which is the, the serial killer. Mm-hmm. That was the kind of thing, because they were still holding up a mirror to the audience saying, this stuff happens, guys. When you leave the theatre, be careful. <laughs> but I'm just curious, this is going off track a little bit, but I'm curious about uh, a deconsecrated church. I've never really heard of that. I've certainly heard of places becoming consecrated, but I've never heard of deconsecrating a place. Yeah. Do you know anything about that, Richard? Yeah, the process that's quite, and well, it- what's done? Well, it was an 18th century um, chapel, so, you know, a very a small little chapel. And then, yeah, it just was was stopped being used as a chapel. So it became this big empty space. Well, not so big. It was a very small venue. But then obviously when um, the founder of the Grand Oscar Metenier, was looking for a place to build his little theatre, the opportunity came up to get this empty chapel. The amazing thing is he did very little to the inside. So these amazing photographs that we're lucky enough to have of the inside, you can see there were still these 10-foot-tall angels in the rafters carved out of wood. And, you know, the, the apparently audiences who went said you could still smell, you know, 200 years of incense and wax. And the thing is, when it, you know, when it became the theatre of horror, can you imagine turning away, averting your eyes from the shock on the stage to see a disapproving angel staring at you um, yeah. and, and getting that smell of, of the incense and the candle wax? 
So it was like a, before the show started, there was something evocative. And you can imagine people thinking they're saying, this was once a holy place, but it isn't anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's like the inverse. But yeah, that, that idea of the deconsecrated church, it's, it's, it's the underlying premise of that song, Alice's Restaurant, right? That, yeah, yeah. That's all happening in a, a church being turned into a house. And, and then in Atlanta, we've got this really beautiful music venue called the Tabernacle downtown in Atlanta, which is used to be a big church. And it still sort of has a lot of that feel to it. But, you know, definitely not churchy sort of things going on there. Which <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right. You know, those venues were great auditoriums, weren't they? Yes. You know, they were designed for singing, for music, for yes. big speeches. And so, you know, the acoustics were there. That was already a kind of ideal space. But I just think it's amazing with the Grand Gideon. It was a happy accident, really. But in a way, it sets the, 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 the paradigm, doesn't it, for future haunted attractions and, you know, the haunted mansion at Disney or whatever, yeah. you know, the, as you go in. <laughs> And you look around you, the, the show's beginning, you know? <laughs> exactly. It's 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 uh, setting your expectations or uh, kind of, you know, from a psychological perspective, it's priming you for the experience. And another thing quite mm. interesting in that regard, I mentioned Oscar Matenier, and he, uh, you know, apparently when audiences were queuing up to go in, when it became really popular, he would be dressed in black and he'd be in the in the alleyway outside talking to the, the people queuing up. And his day job was he was secretary to the uh, the police force in Paris. So he would be telling them some of the stories. Oh, you heard about that murder? Well, I can tell you even more what the newspapers didn't tell you. And um, so it was all this kind of horror host stuff. Again, you know, it it really is indicating the kind of wonderful stuff that's going to happen later. You know, the, the, the kind of man in black host. Fantastic. <laughs> Monster Talk is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something preventing you from achieving your own goals? Are you having mental health challenges? Are you talking to me? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking, talking about me? <laughs> this is all about you, Karen. I think there's, I think the, yeah, I think there's something uh, preventing me from uh, achieving my goal, and I think it's me. So. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> we... We are the enemy within. We're the ones we can't stop from undermining our own plans and our hopes and our dreams. You mm -hmm. can't escape you. But what you can do is hopefully find ways to navigate around your own limitations and, and hang-ups. Yeah, we're, we're born free, but everywhere we're in chains, right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> this, this business is just such a, an exciting and innovative new idea because it kind of circumvents having to be in a doctor's office, having to uh, deal with the secretary and other people in the waiting room because you can instead schedule weekly video or phone sessions and you can even talk to someone via text. And that's so cool to me. That's the way the world is going. It's something that we all know can be a, a challenge or an issue. And it's sometimes it's hard to overcome stigma associated with mental health issues. But this is so great because it's private, discreet, it's licensed professionals. You just go to the website, sign up, and they will give you a little questionnaire that guides you through to get you to the kind of help that you need. And they deal with all kinds of, uh, of mental health challenges. I think it's something that uh, we can all do to, to have some, some help with because I don't think that there's any shame in, in talking to someone. And sure, you can talk to friends and family, but there are some things that you just want to keep confidential and uh, it's good to get a, an outside perspective. I mean, if you have relationship trouble or depression, stress and anxiety, or if you're having family conflicts, a lot of these kind of issues, you can't talk to your family, or maybe you don't want to talk to mm -hmm. your friends because you're afraid of what they'll think of you. 
but yeah. you can talk to a professional counselor, a licensed professional counselor. It's all discreet. It's done securely. You can use video conferencing or texting and you don't have to wait in a waiting room. It's just it's just a fantastic aid for people in a time when we probably need it more than ever. Absolutely. And I think it's great, too, that it's available. The service is available for everyone around the world. So it's not just us in the States. It's also people in uh, England and Canada and Australia and New Zealand. So it's just accessible to everyone. Now, it is affordable and convenient, but as a listener to Monster Talk, you can get 10% off of your first month of support by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash Monster Talk. There are already 1 million people who are using this service. So again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash Monster Talk. Thank you. So I had a follow-up. I've read about uh, people entering the building and that there's the smell of candles and wax and incense and people likened it to uh, walking into a tomb. And I've also heard that sometimes that they had a leaky roof and when water would come through the roof, the people would think that the building was leaking blood in the middle of the yeah. place and, and that really added to, added to the atmosphere. That's right. I, I think it, I think it's just fantastic, isn't it? And, you know, here we are in, in the sort of season of Halloween and, you know, that's the kind of thing you'd want with a haunted attraction or something, isn't it? Use the building to its advantage. <laughs> yeah. And many years ago, um, myself and my co-author, Mike Wilson, we went with a group of our students up to the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, and we had a choice of venues that we could do our horror show in. And one venue was a church crypt at midnight. And we said, yeah, we'll have that one. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's cool. that's okay so i wanted to and if you'll pardon me i do have a tendency towards puns but i just want to set the stage for our audience because they (laughs) they may not be able to put themselves in the mindset easily of of a theater goer at this time there's no radio there's no motion pictures so how does theater at that time sort of compare to our forms of entertainment today yeah, really good question that. And um, I mean, I think that was part of the effect of it was part of this sort of realist revolution that was going on, certainly in French culture and spreading across Europe, where people had had enough of kind of historical drama and melodrama and all these things. They they wanted, you know, art that was about the real world and real life, you know, realism with a capital R. And, you know, what the, as you said, there was no radio, TV, but there were newspapers and the Grand Guignol used a lot of true stories from newspapers as the basis. And I just love the idea of an audience sat watching a play and then, then when they realised what it's about, going, oh, my God, this is true. This happened. Mm. Or, you know, I was just reading about this and these gruesome crimes of revenge or murder. And they see it there with glorious stage blood and all the rest. So... You know, and that must have built a cult around it. I mean, it became extremely popular, especially it had a kind of local audience who would go and see plays again and again. And I think they took great pleasure in going with someone who hadn't seen it, who hadn't seen the jump scares. Um, so they're doing that. But also tourists were going along as well. And it just had this kind of reputation. And especially when it was doing topical plays, some of them about, you know, really notorious incidents. And it was a chance of people to go and see it. You know, we might look up something on YouTube or, or whatever now, um, but people then, you know, this was their chance to to see it happen before their eyes, these horrible things that happened in real life. 
There is something special about those live shows, I tell you. I, I, I went to see the Book of Mormon being performed and with my wife a few years back. And at one point, a, a character on stage is killed. And I remember someone screaming, Jesus Christ, at the point that that happened. And then I remember a sharp pain in my ribs because I was being elbowed by my wife because it was me that had shouted that <laughs> Uh, I can imagine that. that. <laughs> Actually, Blake, that's a really interesting point, you know, mentioning um, Book of Mormon, because the Grongino was a theatre of comedy as well. Now, this is easy to forget because the, the legend is the theatre of horror, the theatre of terror and all the rest. But they never did whole-length plays. They always did the short plays, and they interspersed horror with comedy. Now, when I've recreated this kind of thing, you can see the effect because you can do all the horrible stuff in one play and then you have a damn good laugh in a comedy and then you're back in with horror. But of course, like any horror movie or whatever, the use of comedy where you get your audience laughing is so mischievous because you're making them put their guard down. You're making them relax. And then, boy, do you really hit them with the next thing. So I love the idea that people think, oh, I can I can breathe easy now. This is a comedy but it was all just to uh, get them ready, primed for the next shock. <laughs> right. Didn't they call those hot and cold showers? That's right. Yeah, yeah. The douche écossaise, the Scottish shower, the hot and cold shower, and in- <laughs> interspersing it. But I do think, you know, looking at <laughs> horror movies now, you know, that some of those best bits, especially, you know, if you're in a, in a crowded movie house or whatever, uh, and those fantastic bits where there's a false alarm, you know, and it's the cat jumping on the bed or, or something like that which makes people jump and then everybody laughs and, and that kind of comic moment um, or even, you know, quite developed comedy, even in, in horror films. It's a devious technique, isn't it? It's that roller coaster. <laughs> so mm-hmm. <laughs> how does this compare? I, I, I'm trying to think of like, what were the stage effects in this theater like compared to the sort of things you would see in a, you know, a Shakespeare play where someone stabbed? I mean, like, how how radically different are these sort of horror plays or terror? Maybe terror is a better word. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's that's a great question, Blake, actually. I mean, I think, you know, we had high melodrama and certainly in, in France, there's these wonderful blood and thunder melodramas, they, they called them. And there were plays like Lucretia Borgia by Victor Hugo, which has got this huge death count in it. And people are stabbed and poisoned and, and all the rest. But it's almost operatic. Whereas I think what was amazing with the Grand Guignol was the realism and that extended to special effects. And there was a genius there called Paul Ratineau who developed, you know, the legend goes, he developed stage blood that would congeal. So audience would, you know, see it congeal in front of them. And amazing effects for eye gouging and, you know, guillotining and all of that. Drawing a lot on stage magic, actually. That sleight of hand and misdirection but actually doing very, very realistic effects. And, and that that had a huge impact on people. So I think, yeah, you say, you know, the, the Shakespearean stuff, you know, may, may have been a bit of red ribbon for blood and, and whatever, and very heightened deaths and people, you know, saying, oh my God, he got me. And all the kind of melodramatic speeches, but the Grand Guignol was sometimes something so shocking about the realism of it and the suddenness of some of these effects, which would make the audience gasp, yeah. <laughs> So I've heard that there were over a thousand plays which took place there and uh, I think actual plays themselves, not performances. But I wonder if you could give us some examples 
aspects of some of the plots of uh, some of the plays which were shown there because I've heard about ones. I mean, aside from the comedy, it seems like a lot of them do involve torture and gore and, and shock and things like that and often involving, as you were saying, stabbing people and taking out their eyes. Uh, I've also read that there was a, a local confectioner who would make eyeballs for the theatre and they would go through those many of those every every day. Um, but, yeah, I wonder if you could tell us about some of the, the plots of some of the plays that were performed. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, as I was saying earlier, some of them are based on news stories. And, and so, I mean, there were some fantastic kind of jilted lover stories. And there's one called The Final Kiss, which I think is a masterpiece, really, because it's it opens with a, a man who's been disfigured by a sulfuric acid attack when he when he left his girlfriend and he's you know he's all wrapped up in bandages and he's requested just to see her to say he forgives her and already the audience is thinking oh yeah really um that's the most wonderful cat and mouse and then at the end of the play he he does it to her what she did to him and of course, oh. with the Grosjean effect, the smoke, <laughs> the melting face, the screams of the actress, absolutely amazing. You know, and that was a play that was revived quite frequently. Ooh, um, acid uh, and, appealing to our base instincts. Nice. little chemistry joke. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so they, they had plays like that. They had one called the, the Ultimate Torture, which was about the Boxer Rebellion, and it was about the siege of the French legation, which rather like an embassy. And so this was a true story. People that had read about the Western powers had all, you know, all their various um, consulates and things like that had been under siege by a a rebellion. And, um, you know, so this was only a couple of years after the actual thing happened. Um, And so Mm. people could go and watch the horror and deprivation of of what was happening there, people with their hands chopped off and, and things like that. But when you think about it, it's literally just two years later or something, you know, again, it's, uh, you know, Too soon. Five equivalents. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that, that's it. They, they wouldn't have held back. And I think, uh, you know, looking through subsequent history and true horrible events, you know, they would have set a play in the Twin Towers on the 100th floor or something. You know, this is the sort of thing the Grand Guignol would do and say, here you go. Watch this. <laughs> yeah. And that, that play has uh, it has uh, like really strong dramatic irony. Uh, it, it's not really the same sort of theme, but it reminds me very much of the ending of the movie The Mist. It's it's just like, wow, things haven't changed that much. I mean, you know what I mean? That, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, that it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, that it really is that paradigm, even though it's from 1904 or something. Yeah. Um, and th- there's one I really like as well called The Haunted House which is, again, from the very beginning of the 20th century. And it's about a group of kind of pleasure-seeking, you know, middle-class people who, who know about this kind of empty house and there's rumours that it's haunted. And, and they go in and you get all the language of the Gothic and you're reading it thinking, hey, the Grand Guignol is going to go supernatural with this one. Um, but then you find out the house, you know, is occupied, not by ghosts, but there's a guy who's trapped his wife there and is torturing her and it really is a kind of torture porn narrative from 1907 or whatever it's absolutely extraordinary you know when all that language of the gothic is shown to be absolutely and you wish it was a ghost because it's so horrifying uh, what is going on you know in, in this kind of locked in the basement of this house you know absolutely amazing you know kind of ahead of its time and, and they did similar there's, there's one play from around 1902 which is called au telephone so 
on the telephone. And in that, you know, a guy, he's having dinner with friends and he's saying, oh, we're also, you know, they're kind of yuppie kind of characters. Like, we've got telephones. Everyone respects we've got a telephone. I'll just phone home and see how my wife and baby are. Um, and he phones up and he hears them getting murdered at the end of the line. He's powerless because he's miles away. And it's kind of, yeah, we, we kind of recognise the trope. But when you think it's 1902, you know, the use of telephone directly for horror is casting a long shadow. And what I love about that play, no blood, no nothing, because he's just describing what's happening. So it relied right. on really good acting. Uh, so no, no special effects needed. But I bet you audience came out imagining they'd seen it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Psychological thriller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have heard uh, stories about boxes that they had in the audience, and I... I think I've heard in, in some versions that they were the confessionals left behind from when the place was a church uh, and about people renting them out or using them as hotel rooms. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this, <laughs> this, uh, this is, you've got to love Paris, haven't you? Um, yeah, there were these little yeah. booths that you could, um, you, they were grilled booths. So rather like a confessional, yeah, you, you could draw the, the, the screen up or down or however it worked. Um, so you'd have a bit of privacy. Um, and so, you know, two or possibly three people would go into those and, and have a bit of fun. And the actors did say sometimes things would break down. You know, they had to say, can you keep it quiet in there, please? We're trying to do a play here, you know. <laughs> but on a more serious note, I mean, it says something. There is something very titillating about the Grand Guignol. I think there's something titillating about horror. But, you know, this was uh, the main theatre, really, in the Pigalle Montmartre district, there was the Moulin Rouge there. There were a hell of a lot of brothels. There was all of that kind of entertainment. But this was the theatre, and it wasn't in the theatre district. But I think some people have had a taste for stage blood and had a taste for some yeah. of the s kind of stuff there. This is where they'd yeah. go and get their kicks. <laughs> <laughs> so some people were turned on going to, to view these plays, but I've heard that other people would faint or vomit and that they had doctors and nurses on hand to to treat audience members if they were affected by the performances. That's right. Kind of in the 1920s, in its real heyday, when they had some major stars there and everything, they would have the kind of house doctor and and nurses. And I think, you know, I don't know how medically qualified these guys were, but it was, was, (laughs) you know, in an era before William Castle does the same kind of thing. Brilliant idea to, to have, you know, a, a doctor in attendance. And um, and it became, you know, this kind of uh, part, part of the folklore. And um, certainly when we've recreated Grand Guignol, we, we've sometimes done that. And it, it just works a dream because the audience find it hilarious. Having a doctor or nurse as you're going in, say, can I just take your, your pulse? Because you look a little frail to me. And, and then picking on, and what we tell actors is, you know, let everyone sit down and then go back to someone again saying, look, we're really worried about you <laughs> or, um, you know, target someone else. And I think it just builds up that free song, doesn't it? It gets the audience yeah. giggling, laughing, getting into it, laughing at each other. Um, so, yeah. So, but yeah, there was this kind of legend about a number of people fainting, including the doctor sometimes. You know, this was a great one. But I'm afraid we c- you can't have the doctor. He's fainted too. Yeah. <laughs> Would people leave as well? Leave the performances in disgust? I haven't found documentation of that, but it can be provocative, you know, and I know seeing modern horror theatre, it can have that effect. And I've seen modern Grand Guignol recreations where people just like, 
I've reached my limit. I've got to go. Right. But sometimes interesting. People go, they go to the bar and then, hey, it's the comedy. I'm going back in, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah. it's interesting playing with that boundary, you know, where, how far yeah. people dare to go. <laughs> I remember um, this is just thinking about theater, the um, or people leaving. My friend uh, in college went to go see Dawn of the Dead, the one in the shopping mall. It was at a midnight theater type showing. And there were other like midnight comedies and shows on and they had filled up. And so there were like people, I went all the way to the movies. I guess I'll go see this, not knowing what it was. And so my friend, he rolled in, you know. 10 minutes or so before the show I was like, why are all these people here? I expected, you know, a dozen and it was like really crowded. And it, you know, if you've watched Dawn of the Dead, you know, it quickly turns into a very thematically similar sort of situation. <laughs> yeah. They're way over the top violence. And by the time they get to the sort of famous scene where they're in the tenement house and one of the zombies bites his wife's neck, it was just three people left. <laughs> it's like just, and I just always loved that idea of like, you know, can I endure it? And just watching people give up and leave and give up and leave. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. So I left, the, uh, I left the Blair Witch uh, Project or whatever it was called. Was it Blair Witch Project or just yeah, Blair Witch? Yeah. I can't remember. Um, yeah, I, I left that. I went to a midnight screening of it. Screaming. And uh, I had mm-hmm. to leave halfway through and <laughs> screaming. <laughs> I had to leave. It wasn't well, it wasn't because of fear. It was just eye strain. Mm-hmm. I was sitting right down the front yeah. and yeah. just with all of the, uh, the the way that they filmed everything, I could not tolerate it. And I had to go and take a break for about 10 minutes before going back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I've got one interesting um, story actually about kind of with modern Gronguignol. There's one show in, in Liverpool in England um, with a horror company that worked there. And it was a fascinating moment because they did one play in the audience. It was packed house. Again, small venue, you know, ideal for the Gronguignol. That's intimate, works best. Um, but when the subject became apparent what the play was about, several people left because it it was about a recent notorious paedophile case. Mm. Um, oh, and, mm-hmm. and it was a, a, a celebrity one. There was a guy in Britain called Jimmy Savile who's notorious paedophile. It became clear after his death. And it was amazing because the audience, they didn't storm out and slam the door. They crept out and they were waiting outside right. and they wanted to apologise to the company to say the show's brilliant but I just couldn't do it I could not when I realized what this next 25 minutes was going to be about I couldn't right. make it you know? right. um and so it's that amazing kind of tension it creates you know um 
where the show is going on in the auditorium as much as on the stage. Sure. But, yes, you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. They were brave doing it. They knew it would be provocative. But again, you know, that's the spirit of the Grand Gideon. It's the kind of thing they would have done. Um, you know, I'm thinking of notorious stories the world over in, in, in the States and Europe last few years. You know, the Grand Gideon would have been in there writing about that. You know? Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think it's it's um, I, I'm always tempted to draw parallels between this kind of thing and the motion picture business, and and I'm sure we'll talk about that overall. But um, you know, the things like in the 1970s, especially Italian cinema, sort of experimenting with the uh, there was the uh, giallos, and then that the whole mondo sort of things, and, and you know, everybody it was so edgy. Everybody's always thinking, wait, is this real? I you know, are, are they actually? Sh is it is it a snuff film? You know, like like. It, obviously it's not at some level, you know, these performers are going to be doing another performance in an hour and a half or whatever, you know? So, but yet it, it seems real or it feels real to the audience at the time. Mm -hmm. it, it's yeah. a, it's, it's, it's a very visceral thing. It, it, you know, and I think it's something we've talked about on the show before is that that sort of uh, how horror and terror, these sort of fictional portrayals gives us a way to sort of process those feelings without the full risk, you know, like the full risk yeah. of experiencing them ourselves. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Is this something you explore in your work? I mean, is it something you, you as a as a professor, do you talk about that sort of the psychological side, or is it more about the drama side, or like what? Yeah, we do talk about the no. psychology of it. I mean, it's quite interesting because sometimes when I'm working with students or, or young professional actors wanting to work on the Grand Guignol, you know, we're having a look at it. We're reading some of the old scripts. We're having a bit of a laugh, saying, "Oh my God, so cheesy," you know, so old fashioned. And then I say, "Okay, well, let's. How would we update this? What?" what are we scared of what strikes a nerve with us um and then you begin to to see it and the amazing thing is the old grongenial plays the formula is brilliant you know they are that thrill ride i think they've got such great structure they know how to build things up and then let you down build it up you get a laugh because it's a false alarm and then wham you know and so we can use that formula, even though sometimes the plot or the surface is a bit different to it. <laughs> so that can, that can be quite mm -hmm. amazing. And one thing I say as well with working with actors is, and I've found doing productions, it's enormous fun to put together. And it's got to be because sometimes you're taking on the stage in the stories, you're going to some very weird, nasty places. And you've got to have trust. You've got to have a damn good laugh as a team. You know, because, uh, you know, and it's really important to know how to to let your hair down. And and I think when I've spoken to other horror companies, they agree, you know, that there's there's something really special about building the ensemble who are working on Grand Guignol because you're a family because in a way you've got to be, you know. <laughs> how long were these shows? If they're, if they're doing multiple plays in a night, what what is your ticket getting you entertainment wise, like duration? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some it, it kind of varies, but they tended to have like four to six plays a night. And some were as short as 20 minutes. Some of the comedies are sometimes they're sort of 35 to 40 minutes. And the economy of them is is great, I think. And what I really admire about them, uh, you know, and the skills of the writers, especially Andre Delord was the kind of most prolific writer, was they could hit the ground running. And I think it's incredible. So a play begins. And if it was a normal play, you'd have had two and a half acts before, you know, but they hit the ground running. The way the audience can immediately get the situation and get the backstory in time for the horrible denouement, you know. It's really, really quite incredible. Um, and I think it's exciting, that kind of anthology package, but 
Mm-hmm. You know, that became a great horror tradition, of course, didn't it? The the, the portmanteau or the you know the, the short story, really. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Amicus and Hammer. Uh, mostly Amicus does the anthologies, but uh, you know, just I have a large collection of anthology horror movies. And although it's interesting, there's sort of a weird tie in. I keep thinking about that. William Castle definitely used the exact same kinds of marketing as the Grand Guignol. And he also made a movie called um, The Night Walker, which was written by Robert Block. And Robert Block made a movie for Amicus that was called The Terror Garden, which is the name of a play from the Grand Guignol. So I, I just I wonder how aware Castle and Block were of this horror tradition. Yeah, I think one of these fascinating things, isn't it? You know, the, how how much was known about it? D- did these people go there? Probably not, and yet they were aware of its reputation. Another one is Alfred Hitchcock. Now Hitchcock, I know, was going to the theatre a lot in London in the early twenties. Uh, you know, before he he got into the film industry. And, of course, there was an experiment in London of the Grand Guignol. So there's a strong chance Hitchcock was there, you know? Uh, and a oh. lot of his work is Grand Guignolian. I, you know, Hitchcock was not interested in the supernatural, but he was great at making horror. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so it, it's there. I think also it did have a reputation. There's a couple of the old um, Tales from the Crypt comics from the 50s that are about the Grand Guignol, so whether some of those, um, the, the writers or artists of that had been to the Grand Guignol when they were GIs in the war, I don't know, you know, or had they read about it and, and the kind of coverage it had, because it did have this kind of status, it kind of embeds itself. And it's such an irresistible idea, I think. If you're at all interested in horror, how can you not be interested in the idea of a horror theatre? So so I think yeah. it kind of embeds itself, you know. And as you say, William Castle is doing a lot of those those tricks with the life insurance salesman and, and you know, those kind of things. And it was the same with you know, the early screenings of Psycho, wasn't it? I mean, Hitchcock was doing the same kind of thing, you know. And I think, yeah, I think they were probably aware of the Grand Guignol. I mean, also the other thing worth saying is, you know, the, the uh, French cinema as well, films like Les Diaboliques, mm-hmm. Eyes Without Face. I mean, these are incredibly pioneering films and Hitchcock owes a lot to, to Les Diaboliques. I don't think there's any question. You know, it doesn't have a shower scene, but it has one of the greatest horror bathrooms. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Uh. And, and so, and, and Lady Diabolique absolutely would be aware of the Grand Guignol because um, it was alive and kicking mm-hmm. there, you know, down the road in, in, in Montmartre. <laughs> well, Eyes Without a Face, that, oh my goodness. Um, in one sense, you're definitely not seeing something yet. You feel like you're seeing something far worse. Uh, yeah. Incredible film. So, so Richard, you've mentioned uh, Delord and how prolific he was with his plays. Could you talk a little bit about some of the playwrights and the authors and also some of the famous actors that performed there? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, what was fascinating with Delord, I mean, he was prolific. He was the Prince of Terror. You know, what a great name to have. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he, he was, <laughs> so he was producing loads of stuff often working with people because he wanted to get his facts right. So he would work with psychologists. You know, if it was a play about a a lunatic asylum or an escape madman or whatever, you know, he would sometimes co-write these. Uh, You know, he he was working with with experts, medical experts as well, to make sure he was getting the medical terminology or surgery sequences correct for the time. 
Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. Another writer, you know, they did attract some famous writers, and one was uh, uh, Maurice Renard, you know, a great science fiction writer. And he wrote for the Grongignol. He wrote a play called The Lover of Death, which was about hypnosis. And, you know, we look at it now and think, oh, yeah, it's a very Svengali kind of play. But when you look at the time, what was going on in Paris or France was huge debates amongst psychologists about the ethics of hypnosis. And then we've got a living, breathing horror play that shows the perils mm-hmm. of hypnosis. So right. you have people like that. Yeah, so so lots of people involved in that. Octave Mirbeau, really wonderful French writer. You know, he wrote a couple of plays for the Grand Guignol. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it just had this kind of this kind of appeal. Gaston Leroux, who wrote Phantom of the Opera, wrote a horror play for the Grand Guignol. You know, so it, it had wow. this pull. And they also had... Um, you know, the, the the great era of the 20s and that, they had actor, actors like Paula Maxa, you know, known as the most assassinated woman in the world. Um, and she was the you know, original <laughs> scream queen, really. Um, but what's fantastic with her, yes, she was the victim, but there were plays where she was the perpetrator as well. And I just think that must be so wonderful for the audience, you know, seeing her, you know, with the stage blood as she's chopped to pieces or whatever, 20 minutes later, she's back on stage doing it to somebody else. You know, great. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Uh, Yeah, sort of seeing how these people, you know, tried their careers spanned the sort of like the peak of the theater and they had to like, you know, they spun off in their own directions, but used it as an inspiration. It seems like the, the, the footprint, the cultural footprint of this little format venue is is quite a bit outsized yeah absolutely it's quite remarkable in that way isn't it yeah definitely just to go back to hitchcock for a moment you know there's a film torn curtain and the paul newman one and it's it's not the greatest of hitchcock's films but there's an amazing sequence where they have to kill a stasi agent in silence because if they do it noisily you know his co-worker outside will hear and it's just this amazing kind of 10, 15 minute sequence of how do you kill someone in silence? Wow. And it's like a short Grand Guignol play in its own right. And again, I think Hitchcock, you know, knew that, inherently knew that structure and what you could do with the structure, you know. <laughs> that's why I, I, if I have to be quiet, I only murder mimes. That's um, that's my trick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So with uh, so many people being tortured and butchered and stabbed and killed over the years. I've heard that there were some injuries that took place over time and that two people died. Do you know anything about those kinds of cases of, yeah, of injuries I mean, and I, deaths? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is a really important thing. Again, when I'm talking to young actors or something, I, I, I will... I will warn them about this, that it's not an improvisation form, right? Right. Uh, Maybe when you're spitballing an idea, great fun. But as soon as you're getting things on its feet, you've got to be so disciplined. Um, And it's, you know, stage violence is very big in the Grand Guignol, uh, but it's like all stage fighting. It's choreographed like ballet. You know, you do not take chances with it. And, you know, you learn the moves so you can do those you know, with, without overthinking it. You know, you, you can do them perfectly and slickly and safely. And we still hear about it. You know, occasionally, every few years, there'll be a, like a retracting blade that didn't retract, people mm-hmm. getting stabbed and injured on stage. And it's probably just a, like a discipline. 
Uh, and, you know, I'm afraid there's been a horrible uh, story in the States this week. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're just thinking about that ourselves. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, safety is so important. So, you know, if you're in the case of the Grongineol, make sure there's blanks in the gun. Make sure it it is a retracting blade, you know, and make sure the right. performers know how to handle those very, very carefully. It, it seemed from my reading that rehearsals were uh, extensive and brutal uh, to prepare for these shows. So, I, you know, I, I think a lot of times when you go to see a performance, especially if it's uh, a, a new one, you, you might expect some mistakes and problems. But it sounds like even though they're performing right. so many different shows that this this troupe was incredibly well trained. Yeah, that's it. And it's amazing. You know, Paula Max uh, uh, wrote some very, sh- unfortunately, quite short memoirs, but we get a snapshot. And she says how demanding it was, how exhausting it was, partly because of those scenes of violence, which had to be done safely and yet convincingly. Uh, and that, that's right. the thing, isn't it? You know, if someone's stabbing you, but, you know, if you're sat at a certain angle, you say that that blade came nowhere near them. You know, it, it begins to collapse a bit. So it had to be really slick and good. But she also said about working with the audience, because sometimes if things went a bit wrong and the audience started laughing in the wrong way, there's the right kind of laughter for a horror show, I think. But laughing in the wrong way begins to destroy the show. And she said it was really tough to get back on the tightrope. You know, that's how she compared it, because, um, you know, taking the audience with you, as you guys were saying earlier, it's not real. You know, the audience is sat there thinking, knowing really it's not real, but they suspend their disbelief and go with it. But, you know, if, if that begins to collapse a bit, it becomes silly and everyone laughs at it. And, uh, you know, when they didn't want that. They did want to uh, keep people on the tightrope with them. <laughs> well, you, you remind me of an interesting sort of procedural question for for doing your research. You know, I know you could look at reviews in the newspaper, but how does one gauge how the average audience member saw something like this? Like, do we, do we have any access to what the general public rather than these sort of, you know, media people were thinking about what they saw here? No, I think unfortunately that that's the kind of challenge we faced, you know, and if, if you had a time machine, I mean, that you'd you, be on the list with it. Going yeah, to yeah. The garage, you know, and talking to the audience, not least. So we get the odd snapshot. There's the odd account that does come up from people who were there. The odd memoir can be quite surprising. There's also some some reviews. Yeah, they may be exclusively about what's on the stage. But there's a fascinating one about the London experiment, I remember, where the reviewer was talking about the audience. And he got a bit freaked because he said there's lots of young people who've got a kind of macabre fascination in this stuff. And, of course, this was just a couple of years after the First World War. And he was really intrigued by why there were young men and women going to the theatre by themselves and just sat there with a grin on their face watching these horror shows. <laughs> um, so you get the odd <laughs> snapshot. And, um, yeah, I mean, they sound great, guys, don't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they're probably my people. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this episode of Monster Talk is brought to you by Manscaped. Let's take a moment and talk about a serious problem affecting many people around the world, including listeners like you. It's a growing problem that you may be all too aware of, or perhaps it afflicts someone you love. Are your nether regions a sweaty, hairy, or dare I say it, a blurry mess? If so, you may be suffering from Squatch Crotch. 
Well, have no fear. The thoughtful, ball-grooming engineers at Manscaped have got just the solution for you. There's a vast difference between these specially crafted instruments and the cheap clippers you see at the store. You might even say these products define their own classification of genitools. Don't bungle your jungle. Trust Manscaped, skin-safe devices for this critical work. Now, have these products been checked for safety? Yes, they have, and I'm proud to say I'm one of their testees. Get shorn with surety. Get cropped with confidence. Try Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0, the performance package for your package. And you can try it with free shipping plus 20% off your order by going to manscaped.com and using the code MONSTER at checkout. The Performance Package 4.0 comes with the Lawnmower 4.0 Trimmer, the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, Plus a travel bag to hold your goodies. Why is it travel bag and not travel sack? I don't know. Anyway, what does all this mean? It starts with the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the fourth generation rechargeable trimmer engineered to cut your hair, not your skin. It has a 7,000 RPM motor. It has a 4,000 K LED spotlight, so you can see clearly what you're doing down there. It's got a really comfortable rubberized grip, and it charges in a stylish USB base station. Plus, it's waterproof up to a meter so you can tidy up in the shower or even in the bath. You don't need a physics course to understand how the Lawnmower 4.0 does work with your jewels. Hey, but wait, there's more! The Weed Whacker is designed to trim hair in your ears and nose. And as I get older, I find I'm sprouting hairs in place. I do not want hairs! With the Weed Whacker Trimmer, I can quickly return my ears and nose to their glory days. And I get to do it with some badass technology in the form of a 9,000 RPM motor and 360-degree rotary blade system, all implemented with Manscaped's skin-safe system. Sheer without fear. Hey, their machines are great, but you also get the Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver Toner, too. These soothing formulas will finish off your grooming with comfort and a fresh, clean scent. Maybe you don't care how you smell down there, but these products also leave you feeling fresh and clean. So even if nobody else knows what's going on down there, you'll be making good scents. And I'll tell you one more thing. Not only can Manscaped help you stop Squatch Crotch... But the Lawnmower 4.0 also does an incredible job of tackling back hair. From your sagittal crest all the way down to Ape Canyon, the Skin Safe system will clear your backwoods. Now, I'm a very hairy dude with size 14 shoes. But thanks to Manscaped, just because I'm built like a Bigfoot doesn't mean I have to look like one. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts for their Performance Package 4.0, the Manscaped Boxers, and the Shed Travel Bag. The boxers are comfy, the bag is gorgeous and roomy, and they're free with this offer. Join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. Get the new Performance Package 4.0 by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code MONSTER. That's manscaped.com with the code MONSTER to get 20% off plus free shipping. I knowed it was a sasquatch from her suit. I think it's fascinating because when we think of Paris, uh, especially in Australia or in America, we think of it being 
one of the most sophisticated and cosmopolitan cultural cities in the world. And there's a, a kind of tacky side to Grand Guignol, and yet it was just one of the most popular attractions of its day. So in any way, was it considered to be out of place or was this just really embraced by the country and by the city? Yeah, I think it was it was part of that that thing. You know, it's the French thing, isn't it, of l'amour and l'amour, love and death, uh, and very very closely linked. They almost sound the same in French, and yeah, um, it was part of that. I think it, there was an ownership of the Grand Guignol by Montmartre. You know, they they were very proud of it for many years. It became a bit more complicated towards the end, unfortunately. But um, for many years, they they were very proud of what it was and its uniqueness. There were attempts to imitate it across the world. You know, London was quite a successful attempt. So, so there was an allure there. And I think one thing that's fascinating with Paris is, is yeah, okay, there's the Eiffel Tower, the Arc de Triomphe, the Louvre, and all of those things. But there is also the catacombs. There is also the subway, the metro. There's also pornography, erotica culture, so important in Parisian culture. And there's also the Grand Guignol. So there's something there. And you have writers like Colette, you know, wonderful French writer, you know, real woman of letters and that, saying how much she loved mm-hmm. the Grand Guignol. You know, she loved that little mm-hmm. place. And, and she wished there was more, um, I nearly swore then, there was more sex than violence. <laughs> um, but, but she put it more. <laughs> um, um, you but, can swear uh, on this show. <laughs> <laughs> but there were some, and she loved it, for fact. Um, and so it's part of the package of, of, of Paris, which is one of the great Gothic cities, after all. It is Phantom of the Opera, it is Quasimodo, and it is the Grand Guignol. I, somehow we didn't talk about the name itself of this Grand Guignol. Oh, yeah. The, it, it means with giant puppet, is that right? Or large puppet, but... but or... yeah. Big puppet. <laughs> yeah, because the Guignol... And if you just look up Guignol, you know, you'll find kind of images of toy puppets and mm. uh, what in the UK we'd call Punch and Judy, that kind of tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like a Punch and Judy show for adults or, you know, a toy puppet show for grown-ups. So that summed it up. Also, the Guignol was sometimes a, a, a slang for a, a green room, dressing room. And the and the whole theatre was so tiny; it was called like the big dressing room, you know. So there's a few sort of things that underpin it, but it. I mean, in the end, it ends up being such a wonderful term, you know. But I think that the big puppet show is a nice idea. <laughs> it is interesting. I it, it reminds me of like there's if you said that name, maybe the people at the time would know you're making references to these sort of shows. Whereas now, I don't, especially coming from French to English, it, it's not as obvious to me, you know, what it means. But I'm fascinated by the way things like the characters from, and I'll probably mess this up too, the Commedia dell'art. I'm one of those people who reads things but doesn't necessarily hear them. It, like in, in Reynard the Fox and those, those sort of stock characters like Chanticleer, like all these sort of like medieval and 16th, 1700s, uh, theater traditions where some of it was improvisational and we have the characters, but we don't have the plays. You know, I, I just, I'm fascinated by how these sort of provide this sort of like genetic material for ongoing artistry without necessarily being able to go back and say, here was what it was originally and here's what it is now. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah, and, and it is. Um, the other thing worth mentioning perhaps with the Grong, you know, there were rivals, Oh. There was one theatre called the the theatre. 
theatre of two masks. Uh, and obviously, you know, the masks were tragedy and comedy or whatever. Yeah. But, and it did try the same thing. So it did have the, the hot and cold shower. So there was that. So, you know, there, there were other ones that, you know, the formula was so successful. Other places kind of imitated it. But I think what they didn't have was that venue. You know, they didn't have a deconsecrated chapel. <laughs> they didn't have anything. You know, so um, there was one uh, short-lived thing in the 20s in, in the Paris um, Wax Museum. They actually built a theatre inside to do kind of horror shows. But it was a bit short-lived. But, you know, they're all trying to say, wow, we want a bit of that that money. The people who couldn't get into the Grand Guignol, they want, we want them to come to us. <laughs> <laughs> but, Richard, you mentioned Colette being a fan of the theatre. And I've also read that uh, a number of celebrities and other famous people visited the theatre, like uh, Ho Chi Minh and Anas Nain, uh, Nin, sorry, Anas Nin. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the people who would attend these shows, some of the celebrities and stars? Yeah, I mean, that, that's it. They they had, you know, I think um, General Patton went to, to see the Cronquinho. <laughs> Um, you know, <clears throat> on the liberation of, of France, you know, so um, really wow. fascinating idea of that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it, it was just so popular. So many people would go. But I think what's important to remember is, yeah, you did have that local audience, you know, the, the locals who owned the theatre would you'd see shows again and again, you know, you have that as well as the tourists mm-hmm. coming in. But, you know, it, it seems like we're trying to piece this together, myself and Mike Wilson, but it seems like Agatha Christie went to the Grongignol because we found evidence that she was writing short horror plays around the time she went wow. to this. So, wow. you know, maybe we'll find a letter. Maybe there'll be something that, that proves that. But, you know, these, these people mm-hmm. going over and, and it's just a lovely thought, isn't it? But they're like, uh, yeah, I'll go and see that. <laughs> I'll check that out. Yeah. So, the in crowd. <laughs> Yes. Now, but th- this is one thing of quite a serious note, though, um, in terms of people going to see it. During World War II, the Grand Guignol stayed open. Now, a lot of the mm-hmm. Parisian theatres closed. The Grand Guignol made the decision to stay open and was very popular with the occupying Germans. And right. this really became a bit difficult for the reputation. I think a lot of the local audience were very resentful. Um, because the horrors that were going on in real life and then people going to watch the horrors on the Gronginil stage and the people who are watching it, uh, you know, were right. the occupying forces. And you can just see uh, that is going to perhaps leave a bit of a bitter taste in your mouth. Yeah. I've heard too that, I've heard that uh, some of the actors were actually members of the French Resistance. Exactly. And they had yeah. people like Herman, Herman Goering visiting and uh, watching the performances and could have turned out interesting. Yeah, that's it. You can imagine Herman Goering laughing loudly and, you know, clapping and in admiration of the blood effects and everything. Yeah, it's Mm. it's a very problematic part of the theatre's history, I think. Yeah. Do they they have to, like, get endorsed by the Vichy or whoever was in charge? Yeah, I mean, as I was saying, you know, some closed and, you know, some... People left France if they could and, and, and so on. But the Grand Guignol, it seems like, had quite a successful few years during that time. Uh, you know, so, yeah, it's 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 uh, part of the tragedy of it, I think, in a way, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I'd also heard the comment uh, that when they eventually closed, 
there was the quote by Charles Noonan that we could never equal Buchenwald. But yet they did survive into the 60s. That's a long time. Many businesses don't make it an additional 20 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, I, that say, saying that, you know, tying their closure to, you know, the horrors of the real world, I, I don't. I don't know. It might, it might be more of a transactional, you know, e- economics thing. I don't know. You, maybe you know more about how why they got a business, right? Yeah, I think it, I think it's part of popular culture history, isn't it? I think what happened was the rise of of TV and the rise of more liberated cinema. You know, when Hitchcock and Psycho can show a toilet for the first time on the screen. Uh, and and a, and a shower scene and all of these things with the glory of editing and and so on and Le- Diabolique could do what it could do. Maybe the demographic shifted. Maybe young people wanting a good night out say, "Let's go to the movies." There's a great horror movie, uh, rather than let's go to the dear old Grongignol. So I, I think that mm-hmm. that was really impactful. And you know, I think that's the same. That's a similar story for a lot of theatre. Uh, there's huge shifts and changes happening in theatre post-war um and, and that's a lot of it is you know that the audience is elsewhere suddenly perhaps you know um, and also also the grand guignol in its last days it was run by a guy called eddie Gillane, uh who really did try to to keep it going and, and he did some great things you know did a sort of stage version of eyes without a face you know he adapted that to the Ooh, stage wow but he was also doing some things that were very very violent um and there's one play where a woman's stripped naked and her nipples are cut off with scissors uh and okay you know this is the grong in the old they've never done that before you know they're outdoing themselves but yeah maybe for some people it's like yeah maybe this is going too far maybe this is just on the edge now i, I think i'll go to the movies instead yeah I, so i guess we're, we're kind of uh running out of time so let's sort of what happens at the end? Like, what, 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 how does this, I guess what I want to know is when it shuts down, what's the lasting impact of it? Like, how, how, I mean, I, I know I'm still hearing about it and I can't stop thinking about mm-hmm. it. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Yeah. It, it closes down. Um, they, they strip out, strip out the inside. So those wonderful angels go forever and all, all of that. It's all stripped outside. Mm. The facade is still there and it's still a theater. Even though inside the layout's completely different, but the facade is is still there. And for me, that's a bit of a metaphor. So even though they closed it down, it it still remains as a theatre. The building is still there. But also that long shadow of influence, you know, it's continued to fascinate us. You know, as time goes by, there's very few people left who actually saw the Grongignol, but it Mm -hmm. still haunts our memory. It still fascinates us. And it's a fantastic time, not not talking about pandemic times, okay, but around that and now as we're emerging out of that, hopefully, it's a fantastic time for horror theatre. And so horror theatre is reviving uh, of all kinds. There's some wonderful work out there, companies across the world, but also it's on our television screens, you know, uh, with fantastic horror series and the horror movies at the cinema, you know, and, and let alone radio, let alone video games, let alone whatever, board games, I don't know. Horror is everywhere and Often there's a little echo of the dear old Gronguignol. And has the uh, tradition been revived somewhat? I've heard of some theatres, I think there's one in Washington, D.C. and one in San Francisco that uh, produce plays that are similar to those which were shown at the, the Grand Guignol. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. In in um, San Francisco, uh, it's closed now, unfortunately, but for about 15 years, um, a guy called Russell Blackwood uh, led Thrill Peddlers, which absolutely revived the tradition of the Grand Guignol. And they had a, their own theatre called the Hypnodrome, uh, which had booths in it, you'll be pleased to hear. Um, and they would do evenings of um, recreating old Grand Guignol plays, but also doing new works, also with burlesque floor shows. Um, this whole wonderful package of, of popular theatre. Still with us is Molotov Theatre Company, uh, which is based in, in Washington and also Baltimore. Um, and they've evolved into the National Edgar Allan Poe Theatre, and they do magnificent work. The, the director of that is Alex Zavistovich, who does wonderful work. And I've been fortunate enough to see some of their productions where they have created a night at the Grand Guignol. Wonderful stuff, as well as doing some very you know, modern pieces and modern takings, but still firmly horror theatre, but for, for the modern audience. Right. Something to check out someday. Definitely worth it, yeah. And, and in London at the moment, we've got the London Horror Festival, which is a whole range, so ranging from horror cabaret to horror magic and, and whatever. But, uh, you know, often mm-hmm. there'll be plays that the Grongy Doll would recognise, say, yeah, you owe us one for this, you know. <laughs> I, I have to say, I mean, uh, it, I would love to go back to the theater and the idea of seeing something like this instead of Beckett really appeals to me, but <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with Beckett, but <laughs> we're waiting for Guigno. I'm going to mess up my own joke. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I wanted to say though, the, uh, you have, you've got three volumes out about this topic, right? And, I, I'll put a link to those in the show notes, but uh, I, what else is coming up for Richard that people can find? What, what, what do you got in the books? What's what's next from you? Yeah, we're great. Well, you'll be pleased to hear we've got a fourth book coming out, Blake. When will we stop? Eh? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, we've got a, a fourth collection. We're quite excited about this one because it intersperses some of the old plays which we're offering in translation for the first time interspersed with horror company work now and it's a, you know hopefully it'd be really interesting for readers to see you know the kind of stuff that's being done now including plays that are supernatural but using that old formula so you know it's an exciting time for that and for me with my practice work uh last year and so i've been doing a lot of radio drama a lot of horror radio so that's been enormous fun as well so we've got some good stuff coming out there hopefully with your headphones right. on, frighten yourself silly. <laughs> well, we'll definitely put a link to that in, your, in the show notes. I I, I want to say again, thank you for helping us uh, expand our audience's grand green knowledge. Uh, <laughs> um, what, what, one more thing. I, I came across you initially by running into your lecture for the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies. And... This is the second or third time that while prepping for the show, I've run across that site and it's nowhere near me. But can you talk a little bit about what you know of that? I don't know what a practice, a group. I, I, I'm fascinated by everything they've done, but I don't know anything about them. Yeah, it's an incredible kind of organization. So it's the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies. And, you know, it, it's not an academic based thing. It sounds like it is, but the level of knowledge and passion that the people who participate in it is extraordinary. 
Um, yeah, and I did a, a talk for the London branch because there's branches all over. There's one in Los Angeles, New York and, and London. I did one in, in London about the Groguignol in the old London Horse Hospital, which is the most extraordinary venue. Uh, and it was nice doing a talk, but you kind of wanted to do a whole, whole Groguignol horror show in there because... The atmosphere was great, you know, and you'd hear the dead horses, no doubt, you know, neighing in, in disgust. Um, <laughs> so they do that. Um, but they also do some interesting online stuff. I've actually got a talk coming up uh, talking about horror radio with the L.A. branch. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm amazed the level of passion, the the, um, the questions people ask. Uh, it, it's a wonderful organisation. Yeah, you really, you know, do do support them. Do get involved if you can. I'll put a link to that in the show. Do you know when your uh, talk is? Yeah, it's an interesting one for me because it's this Tuesday. So it's very soon, actually. Um, Probably too (laughs) soon for your broadcast. I can spread the link uh, before the show comes out so that people can get that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting one for me because it's going to be 3.30 in the morning for me, but live for everybody in L.A. Wow. Wow. I guess it'll be lights out for oh, you. Yeah. Boy. Yes. <laughs> but you can record from your inner sanctum. It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm terrible. Okay. Oh, oh Richard, <laughs> you are. <laughs> Richard, we've got a final question, our signature question for the show, and that is what's your favorite monster? Nice question. Well, I'll be enigmatic <laughs> and I will say this is Norma Bates. Ooh, I like it. Okay. <laughs> I haven't had that one before. <laughs> and I assume all your fans know what I'm talking about. I'm but, sure uh, they do. Yes. <laughs> Robert Block rears his head yet again. That's what's happening. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, 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 I need to do more with him. I, I'm not sure. I mean, this particular show is, you know, typically more focused on monsters culturally, but I've got a, a podcast that I, a, a much neglected but beloved effort of of trying to cover the topic of horror in general, and that probably would fit there. But uh, Block produced so much work that I didn't realize was his, uh, especially in the cinema, talking about those portmanteau films and that sort of stuff. But uh, you know, he, he's so much bigger than Psycho, and and has such an interesting history. I, I'd like to cover some of that. Uh, we'll we'll, well definitely. Mm-hmm. The amazing thing is that friendship with H.P. Lovecraft. And then you look at the timeline, you think, surely not. But, you know, Block was a teenager, wasn't he? You had this correspondence with Lovecraft. And, and then, as you say, yeah, right through to the fantastic Amicus movies and TV writing. What a man. Yeah, amazing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah, he's another person whose footprint is far larger than you would expect. It's It's, it's very impressive yeah. stuff. So, well... Thank you so very much for coming on to talk about this topic. Thank you. It's Absolute fascinating pleasure. and a great uh, topic for Halloween as yeah, well. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. And keep in touch too. Uh, it seems to me you'd be a great guest for future episodes. Oh, thank you. You know God. a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd love it. If, you know, I know we're different parts of the world, but imagine one day perhaps the three of us could sit together in a horror theater can you imagine wouldn't that be grand Wonderful. <laughs> perfect <laughs> monster talk you've been listening to monster talk the science show about monsters i'm blake smith and i'm karen stolzner you just heard an interview with professor richard han he's a professor of media practice at the university of east anglia and co-author of multiple books about the topic of horror theater and the grand guignol in particular 
His work on horror radio and other topics will also likely be of interest to our listeners, so please be sure and check out the show notes for links to all those. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Big Picture Science, I Know What Scares You, and The Sit Down. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks so much for making our show part of your listening routine. Stay tuned. We've got lots more Monster Talk coming soon. a monster house presentation <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible oh, disgusting it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.